Welcome to Sparking Wholeness, where we talk all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. I'm your host, Erin Carey. I'm a survivor of bipolar disorder and a self-proclaimed nutrition nerd who loves asking why. As a certified integrative nutrition health coach, my goal is to help people find balance, and I want to help you find ways to spark wholeness in your life. For more information, check out sparkingwholeness.com or on the Instagram handle, Sparking Wholeness. And now, get ready for today's awesome show. Hey everybody, this is Erin Carey and welcome to Sparking Wholeness. Today, we have a really different kind of show for you because typically when I bring guests on, I want to talk about a topic that I am personally familiar with and I have experience with and that affects me personally, whether it's health or mental health. And this is not going to be one of those shows. This is going to be a show where I'm going to sit and listen, and I hope that you will as well. And so today we are talking to Rochelle Riley. Rochelle is Director of Arts and Culture for the City of Detroit. The author, essayist, blogger, and arts advocate ended a nearly 20-year stint in 2019 as a columnist for the Detroit Free Press, where she was a leading voice for children, education, competent government, and race. She is author of The Burden, African Americans and the Enduring Impact of Slavery, which earned, or sorry, garnered rave reviews and remains one of the top 10 sellers in Michigan's independent bookstores. She travels the country hosting conversations about the burden that America still bears because it refuses to deal with the aftermath of American enslavement. She also is co-author of the upcoming That They Lived, a collection of essays and photographs about famous African-Americans that all children should know. And that is coming out in 2021. And that sounds amazing. So thank you so much for being part of the show today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, like I said before, I am just thrilled to have you on and the timing of this could not be better. Um, we are in the middle of, of a pretty dark time in our nation's history, but it's not, it's, it's not new. And so I would love for you to talk a little bit about, maybe start off with your book and the purpose of, of your book. Um, I, I guess about four years ago, this columnist for the Pittsburgh paper wrote a column that said black people need to get over slavery. It was a long time ago. They're better off than had they stayed in Africa. And they let me know two things. One, he didn't know any black people. And two, he had never been to Africa. So um, because I was a columnist, he was a columnist, First Amendment, you have the right to write whatever you want, even if it's not very smart. Mm -hmm. So I didn't write a column, but I did write a Facebook post that challenged this notion somehow that this was something that was in the past and that, you know, people who were concerned about the lingering effects and impact of it were whiners. The Facebook post got such a reaction that I decided I'm going to write an essay. And then I went, oh, that's no different than writing a column. What I need to do is create a course, a choir of voices talking about this. So I decided to do a collection of essays and I called up friends. My first call was to Leonard Pitts, who's the Pulitzer Prize winning columnist at the Miami Herald. And I said, Leonard, this is what I'm doing. Will you write something? And he was in the middle of finishing a novel on deadline. And he said, I'll stop that and write something. Then I called my friend, Nicole Hannah Jones. And I said, would you write the foreword for this book? She was in the middle of writing her book. And this was before 1619. And she said, yes, I'll do it. And so I proceeded to make all of these calls to all of these people who all stopped what they were doing to write something. And it became 23 essays, mine and 22 wow. others. And I can tell you the most striking and heartbreaking thing was that not one of them 
was on the same topic or I didn't have to call anybody and say, well, somebody else dealt mm -hmm. with this. You need to write about something else. And I didn't plan it. I didn't tell anybody what to write, but they all wrote what was closest to them. And I literally sat and cried when I just counted each one as, oh, nobody wrote about this. Oh, nobody else wrote about this. And I went, mm -hmm. this is how many different ways we are just battered by this and have been for centuries. Mm -hmm. So that became the burden. And the title came from the fact that um, people have for centuries decided that this was a burden that African-Americans carry, but it's actually America's burden that we can't put down until we do something about it. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, it's so interesting that you mentioned that about that they're all so different because that was that was my takeaway, too. It's like, wait a minute, everybody. And, and I wanted to ask you about that, if that was planned. I literally I knew that somebody would write something great and somebody else would write something great and I'd have to choose between two. And I was already worrying for nothing because no one wrote the same thing everybody else did. I, I was surprised. If I had been thinking, I would have tried to do that in advance. But this was, this was a project of passion, a project from the heart. I literally called people and said, do this. And because they dove right in, I didn't want to limit them by saying, well, I really need you to write. You know, I didn't want to pick for them. I needed for them to write uh, a heartfelt, visceral reaction mm -hmm. that's from their experience. And yeah, they were all different. Yeah, that's so cool. And I loved that. And for me, you know, um, a white reader, like it was extremely valuable for me to read that and hear all the differing perspectives because there are a, there's a lot of noise out there. And so it's, it's good to hear personal experience and to remember that we're talking about people here. <laughs> you know? We're talking about individuals. <laughs> We get wrapped up in the politics and the, but like, it just, I'm, I'm a big fan of the book and I really hope that listeners, as you're listening, that this is going to inspire you to grab a copy because it's, it's very important. Um, and I, and I like your first line. Your first line is, I will not shut up about slavery. That was my line in the sand. I was, I was stamping out, this is how it's going to start. Um, it, what was funny is that I got all of the essays first and wrote mine last and after Nicole sent in her uh, forward, which was brilliant, I went, oh, God, well, how am I going to write something now? Um, but I wanted the introduction to make clear why I was doing the book and why I was doing the mm -hmm. conversations and those conversations that happened everywhere and every single conversation, almost 80. Well, actually, there were 80, 80 conversations in different places around the country. All of the audiences were diverse. This was not me going around preaching to the choir, talking to black people about what we've been talking about for four centuries. Mm -hmm. These were folks who really were primed to do something different, to live differently, to sort of talk about this. And what an officer's slaying of a man did was wake people up and say, oh, we need to have that talk now. Mm -hmm. So yeah. even though the book is not, you know, like from yesterday, yesterday from last week. Um, it, it is timeless because it is what we have been dealing with for such a long time and what we deal will deal with for such a long time until we do something about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned earlier that the burden is America's burden. Yeah. So can you expound a little bit on that? Because I think that that's really powerful. Well, this is the way I used to explain it in my column. You know, I was a columnist for 24 years, 20 of those right here in Detroit. And every time there was an effort to help people who had been either mistreated or not given the same opportunities or just discriminated against, people would go, well, why should we do anything special? You know, well, it's not special. You will either take care of people and give them what they need at the beginning, or you will wind up taking care of them on the other end. And the idea that we would have the type of health disparities that we've had because uh, people in poverty and 
a lot of, not all of them, but a lot of them are people who are African-American, will lead to you having worse health, which puts mm -hmm. you in a greater position to be struck by the coronavirus. Yep. Kids who are in substandard schools, like the kids in the Detroit public schools, will not be as successful and make as much money, which means they will need more help. Mm -hmm. All of those things are things we could fix if we just treat everyone equally or give everybody the same chance from the beginning. You right. can do it at the beginning or you will do it later. So that mm -hmm. is a part of the burden. That is what America keeps putting on itself by not doing what it should in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And, and our entire society was constructed in, in a racial hierarchy, which it's, right. and it haunts us today, which is so evident in, in the writings in your book as well. Well, I think part of the problem is people think slavery is an emotional construct that is something mm. that, oh, you know, slavery is over. Now we can all get along. It's not about getting along. It's about slave labor being the economic powerhouse of this country. This country was built on that. The entire mm. South, literally, that was the machine that created the South. Those cotton yeah. fields didn't pick themselves. The tobacco fields didn't pick themselves. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just limited to the South, but the whole Southern economy was based on slavery. So of course, when that was over, there have been continued ways, there were ways, very blatant ways for at least that first 50 or 60 years after slavery to make sure they got that slave labor back. They would have former slaves um, charged with petty crimes, things that they didn't do, and said, well, you can go to jail, you can come back to work on the plantation, and people had to go back. Um, you can make sure that people do not get enough education, so they have to be in the service jobs that are necessary, or that they have to do some of the work that is necessary so that other people can be richer and wealthier and it, it, is a, it is a class model that has existed in our country, literally, since slavery. So that yeah. enslavement is the backbone of our whole economic system. For sure. And, and, you know, I think that there are a lot of people that believe that um, racism and discrimination ended with the civil rights movement. And that is not true. <laughs> never true and the, the, the shame of it is all of these huge things that happened that people thought oh this is the watershed moment this is the tipping point when dr martin luther king was assassinated mm -hmm. in 1968 oh my god things are going to change well a month later bobby kennedy was assassinated oh my god things are really going to change there have been things after things after things that have happened and then the police killings trayvon martin um, mm -hmm. I, I won't go down the whole list but let me just say every single time one of those happened Black people thought, finally, somebody will get it, and nothing happened. And the reason nothing happened is because you could still, if you were not a Black person, think that, well, this was just a terrible accident or tragedy or, you know, let's not make too much of it because then we'll have to deal with that issue of race. The thing that's different about this is the whole world watched a cop kill somebody in cold blood by putting his knee on his neck for nine minutes until he was sure he was dead. People tried to move him. A paramedic told him 16 times you're killing him. It was on purpose. So that was the closest thing we've had in a century to the lynchings that used to take place at the turn of the century through the 1930s. Nobody had seen that in person. This was, you, you could not change this. You could not gaslight this. You could not turn this into something else. It was what it was. And for it to take that long to charge him with a crime and then for it to take even longer to charge his co-conspirators with the crime, I kept wondering why people kept saying, when are the protests gonna end when he had not been charged? Then they kept saying, okay, he was charged. When are the protests gonna end when the other three weren't charged? So now they've been charged and people are like, when are the protests gonna end? When you fix the department so this won't happen again. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing, like you said, there have been so many moments here and through history like this where, you know, we get fired up and it's like, okay, now things are going to change. And so it's at what point, you know, do we really see change happen? In the past, it was too easy to turn away. Mm. Uh, when Ava DuVernay did a story about the Central Park kids who were falsely convicted of a crime and sent to prison, she called it when they see us. Mm. What happened with George Floyd is people finally saw us. People finally really realized that there were police officers killing people and it was being allowed to happen. And that's why you see so many of these protests of diverse crowds, diverse crowds in places that would never have had something. Howell, Michigan, which is you know historically one of those places, it's so predominantly white that I don't know anybody black who's been there except me <laughs> because I was asked to go and speak somewhere. <laughs> Um, there was a whole protest with people literally on their knees, raising their arms, saying, I can't breathe. Mm. And to see all of these people who are white doing that, they see us. Yeah. It's really powerful. Yeah. To see that. Yeah. So getting back to um, your book and the timeliness right now of, you said the, the paperback copy is coming out in yeah, August. I'm so excited that the hardback did really well. And so, you know, you, you, if, you, if your first book doesn't do well, you don't get to have a paperback edition of it. <laughs> do a paperback edition. I'm like, yay, let the train keep going. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, paperback comes out on August 4th, but you can pre-order it now. You can go to my page, RochelleRiley.com to get the details, but you can pre-order it now. And I am hoping that every college and every high school in America gets a copy yep. because it's just so important to hear people talk about it. It's so important to talk about it, but more important, if you're not someone just, I'm, I'm so admiring that you said this is one of your uh, times when you're going to listen rather than talk more, although you can talk to me all day, <laughs> um, but, but, but people have not always listened. And if you don't listen, you don't hear the pain, you don't connect, you don't see a fellow human being that's suffering, you hear an issue or a political, you know, campaign. This, this is not about politics. This is not about um, trying to one up on whose pain is worse. I, I remember when I used to write my column and I'd write about one of these instances and there would always be somebody saying, well, don't write about slavery. The Irish had a hard time. <laughs> it's not the same thing. One doesn't negate the other. Can we, can we stay focused yeah. on one thing at a time? Mm -hmm. So this, this, is, this is probably the first time in history that everybody is paying attention at the same time. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and, you know, it's funny you bring that up. I've always thought about, you know, it's like if I was going to a breast cancer walk and I wore a shirt that said ovarian cancer kills too. Like, oh my God, I need so to write that down and put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's almost like whenever, and most of the time on Twitter, people can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Riley. When I tweet Black Lives Matter, I put the Black Lives Matter hashtag, but I always put two after it to remind people, I'm not saying it matters more than anything else. I'm not saying it matters only. I'm saying black lives matter too. And we're the only ones who have to remind people of that. Mm -hmm. You don't have to say white lives matter. Of course they matter. You don't have to say, you know, right. anything else, but, but it's almost like you've got to remind people of that because it is what was happening. Those yeah. are the people who were being violated. Yeah. Yeah. I have to write that down. You don't <laughs> go to a breast. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, you know, you said a few things in the, I don't want to give away too much, but in the introduction of your book, you um, talked about walking a fine line between civility and rage. And that really struck a chord with me. And it, it, it 
it was really good. So maybe you could explain a little bit more about that for people who don't understand what, what does that even mean? I'll probably ruin the quote, but James Baldwin said, um, to be uh, African-American uh, is to be in a rage all the time, mm. to, to live the way we've had to live, no matter who you are, it's, it's varying degrees. There's occasional rage because something has happened to you. you know, somebody discriminated against you. You couldn't get a bank loan because you were black, um, whatever it is. And there's some people who are just outraged all the time because of the circumstances they're in. But the idea that you have to live with that rage and nobody share it or appreciate it or even understand it is very mm -hmm. frustrating. But you cannot work and operate and succeed and, and get along with people if you're in a constant rage. So you have to walk this line between rage and civility, smile at people even as they're saying something stupid, work with people that you know are racist, mm -hmm. you know, try to find a way to make it work so that you can succeed. And, and what people have never understood, I always say this, and there's nothing offensive meant by it. I went to the University of North Carolina. I'm a proud Tar Heel. I love my <laughs> uh, alma mater. But I tell people that I majored in journalism and minored in white people. That's why. <laughs> I am successful because I made a point of figuring out how to get along in a system that existed. Mm -hmm. And in some cases in newsrooms that did not want people like me there. Now I was lucky because I went to Carolina, they wanted me there. Some people it's like, I was one of the good black people. And that's also one of the most offensive things that could happen mm -hmm. where depending on how much you're willing to be um, viewed or seen or work to be accepted. Um, I don't know that you're being less than you are, but I know it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Everybody in my family went to an historically black college. I mean, every single one of them in North Carolina, Winston-Salem State, North Carolina A&T, not East Carolina, they're not black, um, North Carolina Central, uh, Shaw University, every single one of them. I went to Carolina. I was the only one that went to a white university. And I said, why are you doing that? I said, because they have the best journalism school in the state and I'm going to be one of the best journalists in America. It was that simple. It was not simple. It was difficult. It was everything mm -hmm. you can expect. And you walk that fine line between civility and rage. You know, you can't like slap somebody when they say something stupid, although you really want to. And you have to try and teach. And that's the other thing that's horrible. Having to spend your whole life, no matter who you are as a black person in America, teaching people about race, about civility, about how um, discrimination works, about something that is offensive. You, you literally spend your whole life either explaining or um, not understanding how people don't get something that's so simple, or in some cases, just having to avoid the people who, whether they know it or not, are truly racist. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes you have to deal with them and sometimes you don't. But when you don't, I'm quite happy not to. It sounds exhausting. And, exhausting. and, and you know, with that, I, my education is in health and, and stress and what stress does to the body, what stress does to our brain and the fight or flight response and, um, you know, all of these things. And I just think about a group of people who are probably in high stress mode day in and day out. And for so centuries. for centuries, for cen and, and it's in our DNA, you know, it's that's passed down through DNA. When people talk about those health disparities, well, black people are, have more headaches. Black people have uh, more heart disease. Black people, what do you expect? Oh my God, we are literally under the most horrible stress. On top of that, you add the economic stress of literally having to work twice as hard to be as successful, or in some cases to be half as successful as someone else who's not really working much at all. 
I said, God, you know, if I could get paid as much as some people I've worked with in the past to be mediocre, it would be amazing. Yeah, it's, it, when we look at, you know, I know you've written in the past about adverse childhood experiences and how those experiences predispose us to autoimmune illness later on, mental health issues later on. And considering that racial trauma is a pretty big adverse childhood experience, that's something that, that is in our, and it's carried in the body, you know. And, and I just did that series on children and trauma. Those children are now experiencing this trauma. There are children who watch that video and people will expect them to show up for school in August or September or December, whenever they get to go back, like they're supposed to just jump right in. Can you yeah. imagine being an eight or nine year old kid who's seen that and has nightmares about that? And this is the difference between white people, no matter who they are, no matter how well-meaning, and black people. There's not a white person anywhere anywhere unless they're adopted who could look at that video and see their brother or their father or their cousin mm -hmm. down there on that pavement about two days after the murder i woke straight up because i had the video in my head except it was my brother's head against the pavement i wasn't the same for 24 hours mm -hmm. um, there, there is a a real uh, impact that this has on people and you have to give people a chance to work through that and adapt to that and and where I work, I can tell you that our bosses have been very cool about turning business meetings over to having discussions about it because it's important. I don't have to tell you, people's mental health depends on not holding this stuff in and walking around like powder kegs until you mm -hmm. scream at someone. Mm -hmm. So um, th there's got to be an outlet for that. There's got to be a way to deal with that because I don't think anybody saw until now. And all of these people who are walking around in tears and, oh my God, this is so horrible. We've been doing that after every one of these, even before Trayvon Martin, but since Trayvon Martin, which kind of made it in vogue because you could get away with it, it's been horrible. Mm -hmm. It's been horrible. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that thought struck me this morning because I was just trying to write out some of my thoughts, you know, on everything. And, and, and as I'm writing, I'm like, you know, the truth of it is, is I think, and, and I could be wrong. I think that black people are tired of the aha moments of racism with white people. Thank you. That's right. What it is. Yeah. And, and there's shock, shock and awe for a little bit. And then it's like, okay, well, everything's fine again. Just like this. Yeah. It's being a post-racial society. Mm -hmm. The first time I heard that I laughed for two days, I went, wow. who, who actually believes that myth? We will never have a post-racial society and nobody wants that. I don't want to have to hide my race or my heritage or my past or who I am to get along and to fit in, yeah. but that's kind of what you have to do. I'm one of those folks who was teased about being smart because mm -hmm. some of the people who were my peers said, oh, so you want to be white. <laughs> I, mean, I want to be rich. I want to be famous. <laughs> I want to be great at what I do. I want to work at the Washington Post, which I did. And if you think that means being white, shame on you because what does being black mean to you? Mm -hmm. But I always, my comebacks were just, <laughs> they were not, oh, shame on you or screw you. It was like, let me just explain this to you. <laughs> and it got on their nerves even more than by just saying, go away. But you have to think about those things and think through those things yeah. because we still have kids who are afraid to achieve for fear of not being accepted or being bullied. Absolutely. And yeah, that's, that's a black kids, but it happens to black kids mm -hmm. because other kids who don't want to work as hard or who aren't as um, doing well in school that's their way of striking out and lashing out and trying to hurt. 
Oh, for sure. Yeah. You know, I, I saw that in the public school system as well. It's, You're a teacher, you know. <laughs> it's, it's a real, it's a real thing. And I know a lot of people won't see that, but it, it's, it's definitely real. Um, you know, and you, you mentioned something just thinking about um, history, right? Like I can get on 23andMe and I can, you know, if we want to talk about genetic testing, I, I can get on there and I can kind of figure out, like, I know for the most part, where my grandparents came from, my great grandparents, like I've kind of got that history. But one of the the essays in your book that struck me the most was, oh, now I'm I I read them all <laughs> like in one sitting, and so Walker and the Chinese heritage. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and digging into the heritage and the fact that there isn't heritage the way that there there is for us, you know. Let me tell you, I don't think that anybody also understands the hurt of that either. Mm, that's good. And, you know, sometimes you just want that link to the past and to think that that was totally wiped out. I remember, and I write a little bit in my essay about looking for my grand, like my great, great grandfather mm -hmm. yeah. um, and my grandfather not wanting to talk about it forever. And I finally got him to talk a little bit and learned that they grew up in the bend of the river and his great grandfather was a man named Balaam. That's all he knew, just the first name. But I went, aha. That means I may have struck pay dirt. And I went to the North Carolina State Archives and found him. And I found him in the will of an attorney who had listed him as property that he owned. And I remember going to Africa for the first time, probably a few years after that. And it was a wonderful meeting of small town mayors from the United States with small town mayors from different African countries. And this mayor from Gambia, this little town in Gambia, we happened to be sitting at the same table. And he just caught me sort of looking wistful. And, he spoke English and he said, what is wrong? And I said, you know, I, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't mean to have this moment, you know, intrude in this space where we're all having lunch, but it just dawned on me that I'm still here. And it, I was in Senegal at the time. They'd all come to Dakar. I said, I'm sitting here and I have to tell you, I've been looking for my roots for a long time and I, I, I can't find them. I, I won't know. And I'll probably never know where Balaam came from. You know, all we have is that he eventually wound up in North Carolina and was owned by this attorney. And he looked at me and he didn't touch me, but he put his hands out like almost to my face. And he said, you belong to all of us. Mm. And I have been okay ever since then, wow. from that moment until now, because it made me feel like, okay, I connected in a way that other people can't. And, and so I could stop feeling that sense of loss and feel that sense of connection where, okay, I've got plenty of relatives now. So mm -hmm. that, that is a tough pill to swallow for people who believe in lineage and would love to know, you know, just mm -hmm. anything at all. Yeah. And, and just the idea of belonging and yes. how important, I mean, that could lead me into a whole other series of questions. And I think that there, there's a, a, a lack of belonging and, you know, a lot of people talk about reconciliation, but you can't reconcile what you never had to begin with, you know, and, and same thing for belonging yes. where, there's never been that acceptance belonging, like what, what you experienced. And I, I think that that's really, really powerful too. Well, the greatest irony, <laughs> one of the greatest ironies, but the greatest one for me is all of these folks who came to America and started a country where somebody else was living and then brought Africans here to help them do that, do not see themselves as immigrants. So every time somebody says, well, you should go back to Africa. And I'm like, well, you should go back to, you at least can find out where it was and go there. I would never say that, but you are, everybody in this country 
is an immigrant. We mm -hmm. none of us were here first, except the, uh, the, the the American Indian, and look at how we've treated them. <laughs> Relegated to reservations where right. we don't think about them. You don't occasionally write about high alcoholism rates and poverty, mm -hmm. but we don't even deal with that because you know we've got a whole group of men and some women who have decided we're the first Americans and everybody else comes after us when you're just as much an immigrant as mm -hmm. I am. And yes, that's a great irony for me. So I have never, yeah. ever said it in my whole life, but I kept saying the next time somebody says, go back to Africa. And I, the first time somebody said it to me, I'd never been. So I said, we can't go back. Never been. <laughs> I was going to tell them, will you go back? Where are you from? Yeah, right. <laughs> that's childish. Don't do that. But I, I always said I would. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot there. Um, another quote you said that kind of addresses all of this, I really like, because I think it also, for me, from a health perspective, I got excited because like, yeah, that's how I feel about health. But it also applies to this, as you said, you cannot heal what you do not treat, and you cannot treat what you do not see as a problem. And um, that, I don't know, I'll let you talk a little bit more about that. Well, that is the most obvious thing about um, racism and trying to do something about it. As long as we keep convincing ourselves that it's not a big deal, which people mm -hmm. do, so they don't have to deal with it, then you haven't done anything. It's just like having cancer and deciding, well, I don't have cancer. That, you know, that's something the doctor told me last year. That's not true anymore. And then, you know, at your funeral, people are going, well, dang, why didn't they do something about it? You, you cannot literally ignore what is probably this country's biggest problem mm -hmm. and then think that it's just going to go away. That's mm -hmm. why it never goes away. We have these moments, not the moment like now, this is unprecedented, but we've had moments almost like this for two centuries. Almost here. We finally got here. We finally got here. I don't think these protests are going to stop. I don't think that people are going to move past what has been tolerated for so long. I don't think people are going to settle for, you know, not doing something. And I think that we're finally going to get to a point where we figure out how America can put the burden down. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really hope so. I, you know, I think there's still a lot of work to be done. I'm, I'm a person of faith and I, I see, um, I see some gaps with, with white churches and um, I see some that are doing what they, you know, can the best they can and saying as many things as they can. I see others who are remaining completely silent. So what, what is our silence in situations like this? What does our silence say? Well, silence is ammunition. It, it's just as bad as bullets. If, if you literally see someone, that, you know, there's this footage that's going around now of these Buffalo police knocking down this 75-year-old man and continuing to walk while he's laying there prone, having hit his head. Not doing anything like that is as big a crime as if somebody had just stepped on him or hit him again. Um, he was in the hospital in serious condition, and you had officers walking by him after pushing him down. And I'm like, who does something like that? Silence can be an assault. If somebody is telling you they're in pain and you say nothing, that may as well be an attack. That may as well be you saying, I do not care that you're in pain. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I have said in all of these conversations that I've had around the country is we are finally going to have the conversation we have not had for 400 years. Mm. We're going to make ourselves have this conversation. And if we don't, we'll have to wait for another time where, we, where it comes up again. So I would think at some point we get tired of like coming near the edge of solving a problem and not doing it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm writing that down that we're finally going to have the conversation that has needed to be had. I mean, it's, it's true. And you know, and I've always, I have a daughter who's a teenager and that generation, they are just, they're pretty fiery, you know, like they, 
they're saying a lot. I mean, they've got the social media platform. And I've always, you know, prayed that my daughter and her generation would be the ones to really rise up. And they are our salvation. I'm excited by these young people mm -hmm. now. When I say young people, I'm talking the 16 year old who became a leader in the Detroit rallies here. Wow. And the 19 year olds who have taken to the street. And I'll tell you, they're of all colors, they're of all backgrounds, they're all over the country, they're all over the world. When I saw the size of the London protest, and I thought, and a lot of them were young people. And I said, yeah. I am looking at the generation that's going to finally do what these past generations have not. And I'm so excited about it. And I'm so proud of them. And I'm counting on them because mm -hmm. you cannot look back to any of the people who have not done anything, even if they say, oh, okay, we finally get it. I, I don't trust that. I trust the young people. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they are saying a lot. It's, it's really amazed me for sure. Um, with, you know, continuing this conversation of, you mentioned something about the medical disparities and that's with my nutrition study. And that's something that has just continued to just really bother me. Um, and, and I think that that's something that's not addressed enough in, in nutrition or in medicine. And um, maybe you could speak a little bit to that as well. Well, as I said, racism has always been an economic problem. So mm -hmm. first you had, uh, the enslaved being the economic engine for the country. And then you had the Emancipation Proclamation where you had plantation owners saying, okay, you can leave now. Uh, it was illegal to teach you to read and we're not gonna give you any money. That 40 acres and a mule that Lincoln promised you, Johnson says no, so get over it. Um, and then having to try and catch up for hundreds of years behind that. That means you've never had proper healthcare unless mm -hmm. you're some of the um, few people who have you know, managed to rise above. Every time I talk about um, the, the disparities and, and how some people are living. There will always be somebody who said, well, just pull yourself up. Oprah Winfrey did. I'm like, Oprah Winfrey is an anomaly. <laughs> Wilson is an anomaly. How dare you think that everybody is going to do that? Mm -hmm. um, there are millions of people who are living in poverty. They're not all black, but the folks who are black who literally are facing a system of discrimination that makes it harder for them to get ahead, that affects their health care. It affects what they eat. It affects how they feel emotionally and psychologically. Mm -hmm. All of that impacts the medical system. All of that mm -hmm. impacts how well they are. So if you're not well, it makes it twice as hard. If you're not well, it means the next generation in your family, which means your children, will not be as well as some other children who are in healthier environments. It is a self-fulfilling prophecy, and we have to do something about it. Yeah. And you know, it's funny, I recently interviewed somebody talking about stress and anxiety, and she said something that I thought was so fitting for this. It's that um, the body, your body has to feel safe to do well. Yeah. And wow, like, hello, you know, <laughs> light bulb. Like, do we not see this? Yeah. When you say that to someone who's white, they go, yeah, of course that's true. If you say that about someone who's black, they'll go, oh, why don't they feel safe? Why? Let me count the ways. So I, I think that, again, once people see us as people, see us for the damage that has been done and needs to be fixed, mm -hmm. and see that it is possible to change all of the systems that have made life stressful, sometimes unbearable, then we can begin to start having some healing and, and we can begin to have fewer situations where an officer will feel like he could shoot somebody or beat somebody up because of the color of their skin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So who do you hope will um, pick up your book? With, oh, with God, everybody. Everybody. 
single person, and, and I don't, I didn't write it for black people. I didn't write it for white people. I didn't write it for old people. I wrote it for anybody who wants to understand what's happening because this has always been true. It will always be true. And if you hear it from different people, from different ways, including somebody that you may know, Tim Reed, you know, the actor and producer, Frank's Place, and he's mm -hmm. most recently on Greenleaf, um, and WKRP in Cincinnati for a lot of folks who are older. Um, he wrote about slavery as a cancer that you don't want to come back. Aisha Hines, the actress who's now on 911 on television, uh, wrote about the lack of expectation. She said, why would somebody be surprised that a Harvard-educated attorney who's really brilliant would grow up to be president of the United States just because he's black? Why is that unusual? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that what they'll do is find little bits of their own humanity in these different you know, essays, because these mm -hmm. are real people talking about real things that have concerned them. And if it helps you see somebody that you know who's black, in a different way, helps you reach out to someone, you know, to say, you know what, I'm learning, I'm seeing you, I will try to do better. It, it can make all the difference in the world. And if nothing else, even if you just don't understand, get it so you can understand a little better. Even if you don't do anything else, it's just have a better understanding. It mm -hmm. might change the next time you are going to say something that would hurt somebody's feelings and before you might not know. And now you go, oh, I bet that might not come over so well. So yeah. everybody, every single person, the burden on Amazon, at the burden and also uh, at RochelleRiley.com, which tells you how to go to the publisher to get it. I love it. Yeah. So what would you say to somebody who, you know, would say, well, I, I don't see color, so I don't need to, I don't need to read something like that. I, I'm, I'm colorblind. What would you say to somebody? Tell them that that's the most offensive thing they could say to me because my color is important. It has value. It speaks to my history. And if you need to dismiss that to be comfortable around me, if you need to dismiss that because you think that's a good thing, then that's the most offensive you could be to me. I want you to see my color. I want you to embrace my history. I want you to, quite frankly, if you're going to sing my music and dance to the tunes that some of my people wrote, then know that they wrote that because of the experiences they've had as people of color. Don't assume that being mm. colorblind is a good thing. Colorblindness is a disability. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know who said it. I remember somebody once saying um, that white people love black culture way more than they love black people. And, and like you said, that's a, that's a perfect example. Um, yeah. I really tweeted that. I didn't tweet it because I said it. Somebody put it in a beautiful little mm. box and I tweeted it back out again. You know, yeah. You can love black culture but not love black people. Like, yes. Yep, that's, yeah. That's, that's true. And, you know, and there's an essay in, in your book that um, was probably, it struck on some controversy with, um, what was it, the um, sports teams being yeah. seen as, as plantations and the coaches, the white coaches being like plantation owners. And, and, I just thought it was really good because I do believe that we've been taking advantage of black culture for a long time without letting black people fully into our lives. And that's, that's a problem. Uh, so. In the heyday of Motown uh, and early recording where you'd have black groups to make these great songs and they put white groups on the cover or they give the songs to white groups to sing. Mm -hmm. um, that essay was by Dr. Kevin Blackstone, who's just one of the best uh, there's been on sports and, and sports analysis. Um, he and Bill Roden, who was another longtime sage on, on sports, Bill wrote a book called uh, $40 Million Slaves about mm. uh, the athletes who, quite frankly, are owned and treated like property. Mm -hmm. um, and because they get paid, everybody thinks, oh, that's okay. But no, that is sort of indicative of a system where everybody feels like that's how it works. 
whether you work for a sports team or not. I'll never forget a long time ago when uh, an editor said to me, that he, was try- he, he was trying to be nice. And he was so excited. I'm so glad you belong to us now. I don't belong to anybody, but I'm so glad to be working for you. And you'd give me a raise. Uh-huh. If you, it, it, it was like property. And if you're always yeah. looking at people as property, then you're not looking at them as human beings. So yeah. Think about that. That's not something that just happens. You have to really think about it and work mm-hmm. at it. And if it's worth the work, if it's worth America putting that burden down, then everybody has to work at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we've been working at it for a long time. So join us. <laughs> yeah. And, and we, and like you said, we can't put the burden down until everybody is working to do that. That's right. It's because right. it, it will always be there. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Um, is there anything else, you know, you want to share as, as we're ending our time? I, I mean, I just feel like I, I could have a thousand more questions for you. Um, just I, I think the, the, the last thing I'd say that's so important to me, and I know would be important to you as a teacher, is when you're thinking about whether these things are important to participate in or to do, if you're trying to decide whether to read the burden or not, think about your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, whether you want them to grow up in the same world where we've had to deal with this. Even if you're not Black and dealt, had, to, had to deal with the, the uh, unfairness and the mistreatments and the discrimination and sometimes the brutality, do you really want your children to continue to see that? Mm-hmm. Think about the world that we want for this next generation. Everything I do now, I do for my grandson, so he does not have to ever experience some of the things that I've experienced. It's that simple. Yeah. That's why I'm counting so much on this generation that's happening now, these kids. Mm-hmm. I think they're going to make it a better place for him. He's 10. By the time he's 20, I don't want him to ever have to see an incident of a mm-hmm. George Floyd being killed. I don't want him to have to think about the fact that somebody might not let him do something because he's Black. Mm-hmm. I, I want that world. And if everybody wants that world, you can't, as much as people have tried to do it for years, you can't create that world for some people and not for others and think that eventually there won't be problems. You know? Yeah. There's no wall that you can put around your life that will keep your kids from seeing this. And in some instances, if you're some of those people who are trying to do that, your kids are eventually going to be embarrassed by you. Mm, That's good. Yeah, it's true. And and I kids see so much more than we think they see. They're sponges. They see Mm -hmm. all of this. So think about the children and your grandchildren and whether this is what you want for them. And if you don't, let's all work together to put the burden down. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Put the burden down. That's so good. So my last question then that I'll ask you, I always love to end on this and you've kind of already touched on it, but if you could give just one piece of advice to spark someone towards wholeness, anyone, um, what, what would you say? It's so trite. And I know people here, they don't really pay attention to it, even though we've been saying it for like just decades and decades, treat everyone like you want to be treated. When you see something that's happening, Imagine yourself in that person's shoes, in that place. And if you really, really see yourself there, you won't allow it. So it's not, you know, the golden rule, do it to others. No, look at what's happening and pretend like it's you. Just pretend mm-hmm. like it's you. When you see somebody yelling at somebody, look and pretend that that's you. If you see something that you know is racist, and I'm not suggest, uh, suggesting vigilantism or stepping in. I mean, all of those people who watched that man be murdered, we're, we're not able to go and, and attack armed police officers. Um, I don't know how many of them called 911 to say one of your officers is killing somebody and you need to get on the radio and tell the other officers to stop. Because who thinks about that when you're watching? They were in shock. It's like, is he really not going to do that? They were yelling at him to stop. They were saying that his nose was bleeding. 
And that officer looked almost blissful, just sort of blithely nonchalant as he continued to know that the life, I mean, it was a not moving lifeless body and he mm -hmm. made sure to stay four minutes longer. He knew what he was doing. People are shocked by that. People are finally shocked by that. Mm -hmm. Put yourself down on the ground with your face pressed against the pavement. That's why people are marching because they can, this is the closest they've come to being able to see it. Yeah, yeah. So wear everybody's shoes, wear mm -hmm. everybody's shoes. Such a good reminder. So where can people, I mean, we've already said your book is on Amazon. And go to RochelleRiley.com. It tells you everywhere to get it. And, and you can get it anywhere. But we mentioned Barnes and Noble. And we, I like to mention independent bookstores because we yeah. have to make sure they survive. Absolutely. You, you can pre-order it directly from Wayne State University Press, which published it. I love them. Great group of people. Okay. Or you can get it any place where books are sold. But if you literally just Google the burden, go to the Google <laughs> and, get, <laughs> and, go and, and put in the burden of Rochelle Riley, it'll take you to it everywhere. And your next book is coming out in 2021? February of 2021 That They Lived. And it's a book for young readers that reminds them that every famous person was once a child. So all of their awesome. biographies are, to are, are told from the perspective of what they were doing when they're the ages of the kids that this is you know, written for. But it's also for their parents to remind them that it's never too late. Oh, I love that. Oh, I'm excited. I have, I have two younger children too, so that'll be great. Um, Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. And I just appreciate this conversation and your willingness to hop on and, and be on this podcast. Anytime. Thanks so much. Spread the word. And thanks for mentioning the book. Thanks for tuning in to Sparking Wholeness. For more on all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul, check out my website, sparkingwholeness.com. Don't forget to be kind and subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. And to be really kind, you can leave a nice review. I like those.